Welcome. Today we start our story in 1994. I'm Alex. And I'm Nikki. And this is our podcast, Journals of, of a, a Journalist. Journalist. 1994 was a very dramatic year in South Africa. Yes, it was. It was the end of 48 years of apartheid. And it was the same year we had our first fully democratic elections in South Africa. Yes, it was a year when a lot of things came to an end. And it was also a year where a lot of things had a new beginning. And you were part of it. You were part of this new beginning. Absolutely. I mean, the events that people now are learning in school, that was my life experience. I was lucky enough to work for the Independent Electoral Commission, the IEC, And they were the organization that actually ran the elections. And so I have a worm's eye view of what went on. Wow, that's that's interesting. So how did you get into that? Well, this was in 1994. It was the beginning of 1994. And at the time I was working for the SABC, which is our state broadcaster. And one day I got a phone call. This was one day in February. I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Clive who had a a public relations company called Concept Marketing, and they did a lot of um, stuff for the ANC and the government and um, development and so on. He was very well politically connected, let's put it that way. Anyway, so he phoned me one evening. Um, I'd worked with him years before, and I knew him quite well as a friend. And he phoned me one evening and he said, how would you like to work for the IEC? And I said, what is the IEC? And he said, well, it's the Independent Electoral Commission. It's this organization that has been set up to run the 1994 democratic elections. And I said, oh, um, what would I be expected to do? And he said, well, look, they need communication. It's very crucial. You are a journalist. You understand communication. Uh, I've worked with you. I know what you can do. So how would you like to join us? And I said, well, that's very, very interesting. How would it work? And um, at the end of the day, the SABC seconded me because I was working there to the IEC. You know what secondment is, don't you? Uh, no, let's, let's, let's uh, get an explanation for that. Okay, when a person seconded, it means that you're working already for someone and an organization that has a short-term contract and they need you for a short time, they don't want you to resign your job and then they hire you because they've got to go through the whole process. So they go to your employer and they say, won't you lend us this person for a few months? And your employer keeps on employing you, they pay your salary, but you then work on this project. And that is actually how most of the people ended up at the IEC. They had jobs. There simply wasn't time to go out and recruit people from scratch and rely on the fact that people were looking for jobs. So they approached people who were working in various uh, um, organizations and parts of government and so on, and they were all seconded. So at the end of the day, if you look at it from that perspective, most of the people who worked for the IEC were volunteers. Okay, well, it's quite a big turning point. You don't want to have a whole bunch of new people you want to experience there. Okay, so now that we have the facts and how you got into it, let's get into the details. Let's hear the tea. Well, this was the beginning of 1994, and uh, let's, let's put a little bit of background into the story. You must remember there that South Africa at that point was teetering on a knife edge. Um, The entire country was on a knife edge. Mandela had been released from prison. There were these multi-party negotiations going on, which were called CODESA, 
where a lot of people from the old government and the new government were getting together and they were busy discussing what this new country was going to look like. There was a lot of distrust. There was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of rioting. People were very scared. A lot of people were leaving the country. Everybody thought there was going to be civil war. So in fact, it was a very, very tense time. There was a lot of violence. There was violence between blacks and whites. There was violence between different uh, groups of black people, between the ANC and the IFP. So it was against this background that the IEC, of which I became a part, now had to, in four months, they had to put together an election. And if anything went wrong, and I mean anything, the country would dissolve into flame. And there was so much that could have gone wrong because, you know, looking back on it, it went okay. But when we started, we did not know that it was going to be okay. We did not know what was going to be wrong. So that entire four months, we were working under extreme stress, state of trepidation. We never knew from one day to the next when it was all going to blow up in our faces. The main problems we had was that the IEC couldn't use the paraphernalia from previous elections for a number of reasons. First of all, they just didn't trust the process. They couldn't use people who were trained in running elections because the previous elections had all been for white people and they didn't trust the home affairs people because they thought maybe they're going to try and manipulate the elections. Well, you were coming out of 48 years of this white empowerment and apartheid, so it's understandable that it was really going to be a completely new experience and a completely new system of doing things. Absolutely. And in fact, there was this thing called the Electoral Act, which had been written, which was a law governing how the elections had to be run. But that was the policy. It wasn't the detail. So what they had was a group of 12, what they called the commissioners, and they would go through the act and they would decide, okay, the act tells us we have to do it on this date. How do we go about it? So our job as communicators was to get the information from the commissioners and then we had to get that out to the wider public. Not only the wider public in South Africa, but the world. Because again, and I'm going to say this so often throughout this entire recording, this had never been done before, ever. So nobody knew what to do. It was a case of we have to hope for the best, anticipate the worst, make plans, and just really, really hope it goes, it goes right. I mean, and South Africa at that stage had, it wasn't only South Africa, there were the homelands, which were a, a thing over from apartheid where you had these little independent black Bantustans, which were run yeah. by black presidents. And it was a case of, are these guys going to participate? Are they going to willingly give up power? You had the white right, who were feeling very, very threatened. They didn't want a black government. You had the ANC that was in a war with the IFP. The ANC was, was this one political party. The IFP was a Zulu nationalist, a very largely Zulu party. And they were at each other's throats. There were, there were bombings. There were, there were killings. There were all sorts of things. And then also, if you look at the society, the last census of the population had been done in the 1950s. Sure. It was 40 years before. So we didn't know how many people there were in this country. There were large parts of the country that had no maps. There was no voters' roll. A lot of people didn't have ID books. 
they had no idea who lived where. The townships didn't have street names. They didn't have addresses. So, you know, the first thing one had to do was in order to run an election was to get these people into some way of being counted and measured. And that was our first big issue that we had to get these people into this. Uh, where we first went, let me go back to the beginning again when I first arrived at our venue. Okay. Um, the commission was sitting in a place called the World Trade Center. Uh, okay, the World Trade Center, in, in not, it's not going to be the one in America. <laughs> no, it's not that one. This was a very large conference and exhibition center next door to the airport in Kempton Park. Okay. And it was huge. It was an ugly, flat building with a vast parking lot. And it was basically just a massive, massive great hall that had been divided up into little offices. And it had a huge glass door which went into this entrance hall. And what I remember most from the World Trade Center in Kempton Park was the terrible, terrible carpet. Somebody <laughs> had decided somewhere along the line to put a carpet down which was squares of neon green and pillar box red. And the moment you walked in, you got a, a migraine. That's definitely not a forgettable It's not forgettable. Venue. And most people were walking looking at the ceiling because your eyes started to cross if you had to spend too much time looking at this carpet. So that's where we were working from. And on my first day when I arrived, there was nothing. There were just empty rooms. Nothing. And I mean nothing. Not a chair, not a desk, not a telephone, nothing. So we had to find all of these things. There was somebody I worked with, his name was Viv Nyka, who became known as being incredibly good at procurement. He was brilliant. If you wanted a telephone, he got you a telephone. If you wanted a oh, desk, okay. he got you a desk. If you wanted a shredder, he got you a shredder. He was so good at this. So we would say, Viv, please get us this. And within hours, we would have it. He sounds like a person that knows people. <laughs> he definitely knew how to get things, that's for sure. So that was Viv Nyka. And, uh, within a few hours, we had chairs and desks and telephones. The other thing which might seem really strange now was that there were no cell phones. In fact, there were no computers. There was no such thing as a personal computer. There was no such thing as a cell phone. So you've got to remember, we were working largely off paper. There were computers, but the internet was still very, very new. Yeah. So you had to really know your computing. It was very, very primitive in that respect. So most of our work was done with telephones, faxes. We had beepers in the very, very early days. And most of the stuff was paper-based. The other thing was how fast they employed people. I remember in those early days, you had people arriving at the World Trade Center with a, with a letter to be delivered. And they walked out with a job. Um, because, <laughs> that sounds so nice. <laughs> I know. It was, it was, it was crazy. It, they needed so many people. So people would just arrive and they'd say, oh, you, you can stand upright. You look like you can spell. Get a desk and sit down and start working. And so in those early days, there was an explosion of people coming on board. The worst, I think, for us was that this wasn't just one election. This wasn't an election just for the national parliament. They decided that they wanted to do provincial elections, which meant that they actually went, we went from one election to 10 elections because there were nine provinces. So all of a sudden, this had to be done 10 times. And that's what made it very, very stressful. And again, 
this entire background of violence. We, I, I think, I can't remember the exact date, but there was an instance where the white right decided that they were going to storm the World Trade Center. They'd done this once before in 1993, when the Codesa negotiations were underway in, in the World Trade Center in Kempton Park. They, about thousands of them, they stormed the venue, they drove a tank through the glass doors, yeah. um, they tried to occupy yeah. the place, and then eventually they were calmed down. They tried the same thing again while we were there, but um, this time it was actually quite funny because they drove their tank through the front doors and we were working and we heard this massive crash and we went out and there's a tank parked in our, in our hallway. Uh. And we all sort of stood and looked at the tank and the guys in the tank sort of stood and looked, looked back, back at, at us you. and, uh. okay, and we went back to work. Uh. And they realized that this wasn't going to work a second time. People just weren't taking them seriously. And shortly after that, we were moved to a new building in town. I think also people realized that the venue in Kempton Park was too far away. So we moved to a new venue in Commissioner Street in Johannesburg, in the heart of Johannesburg. This was a massive building just across the road from the Colton Centre. The other thing that we had to do to try to find out how many voters there were was the commissioners asked the South African breweries for their distribution list because they thought, okay, <laughs> South African breweries is probably the most efficient organization in getting product to the customer. So if we can look to see where they sell beer, we will know where we will people know are. where the people are. Exactly. <laughs> but the mistake they made was that a lot of people buy beer on their way home. So they would buy beer near their work and then they would go home. So in fact that that didn't really work very well. But that was just one of the problems we had. So as I've said before, this was just an explosion of people and busyness and so on. Even then from about March onwards we started getting journalists coming to us, both local journalists and overseas journalists. And I was very, very impressed with the overseas journalists because they had taken trouble to do some research. And in fact, this was all the way through. This was the biggest difference I saw between local journalists and overseas journalists, was that the overseas journalists would come and they were always one step ahead of us. They were always asking questions that we weren't quite in a position to answer yet. Whereas the local journalists didn't seem to have done their research very well. And it was very, very clear when we had press conferences. Um, obviously, there were a couple of local journalists who were exception to that and were very good. But mostly the overseas journalists were really, really on the game. Well, I'd expect the overseas people to have more of a bird's eye view of what was happening in South Africa. And they could get a chance to stand back and see what they can do. But whereas in South Africa... This was new, this was a changing of the times, a changing of the whole country, so it was quite a bombshell. Yeah, yeah that is what, and I think also the overseas agencies would be sending their best people, their most senior people, whereas most of the time there were juniors coming to the press conferences because it was a case, so I think they knew that all they needed to do was just lift the phone and we were there, whereas the overseas people obviously were sending their senior personnel. Anyway, okay. so shortly after the Afrikaans right put their tank through our plate glass window, 
and in fact, the funny thing was that tank sat there for days. Nobody quite uh-huh. knew how to get <laughs> rid of what it. What to do with a huge tank. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we had to sort of pick our way over a tank. Just step around the tank. Step around yeah. the tank on our way home every day. I don't know if that was the reason why they decided to move us, but we did go to Commissioner Street, which is a very, t- I think it's about a, a 12-story building in the center of Johannesburg. And there things changed quite a lot because all of a sudden now we were given computers that had the internet and they had this new operating system called Windows, which we'd never seen before. And we had cell phones. I mean, this was real cutting edge technology. People didn't really have cell phones in those days. So when you used your cell phone, you're actually quite self-conscious about it (laughs) because if you were out in public... And you were talking on your phone. You just knew everybody was looking at yeah, you. Yeah, what is this weird person doing? <laughs> yes, and yeah. you didn't know whether you should be smug and show off the fact <laughs> that you've got this cutting-edge technology or whether you should be ashamed of the fact that uh, people were looking at you. So that was a Commissioner Street. There was a lot of excitement around that. A lot of people were still in very good humor We knew we were part of something big. There was a lot of stress. The hours were very, very long. I would normally be at my desk at 6 o'clock in the morning. I had a beeper. I had a phone. I had a landline, a cell phone. I was constantly taking calls. And because we were working internationally, because of the time difference, we were getting calls from America and Asia, and the Asian calls would come in at 1 o'clock in the morning. So we really were working round the clock in those days. What were you doing exactly? Were you covering the story? Were you answering phones? What was your role here? There were two things we had to do. There was a team of us. There were two guys who were basically in charge of our department. One was called uh, Paul Bell, and the other one's name, he was Peter. I forget his surname. But what they would do was they would go to where the commission was sitting, And they would find out what the latest information was. And then they would come back to us and they would say, we need to get this out. So we need to let people know what the latest is, what what the latest news is regarding getting temporary ID books, where the polling stations are going to be, what you need to do. Uh, Because also a large part of this, remember, people had never voted before. Three quarters of the population had never voted before. There was a lot of information that needed to go out about what people are expected to do, what you can do, what you can't do, uh, addressing people's fears, how things are going to work, where the polling stations are, uh, the rules regarding the vote, all of that information. We had to get that from the commission and we then had to send that out. So what I did was I used to put out a bulletin every day on this new thing called the internet So I had these journalists in my address book. And then when we received something, we would send out little mini alerts. And then every day, at the end of every day, I would write down in point form what the commission had decided that day. So, for instance, they would decide that the polling station... Silly little things, like they would decide that the polling stations were open from 7 o'clock to 7 o'clock. We needed to put that out. Um, We needed to show people what what ballot paper was going to look like. People needed to know what the logos were of the various political parties, what the parties were. The part, you know, they had to sign up the parties, and there were all sorts of events. 
like the party signing the electoral code, coming in, being part of it, the announcements of the parties that were coming in. So all of that information was being brought to us and then we had to get it out there to the journalists. That was one side of the job. The other side of the job was journalists phoning us and we had to answer their questions. And as I said earlier, invariably the journalists were one step ahead of us. So they were answering, they were asking questions from us that we couldn't answer. Or they would phone up and ask for further detail on something and we didn't have that further detail. And that was very stressful because then we had to go back to the organizers or the commission and say, a journalist has asked this question, what do we tell them? And many times there was no answer. So you then had to go back to the journalist and say, <clears throat> um, I can't give you <laughs> that know. answer, but I can give you this answer uh, instead. Yeah, yeah. And so that was, that was actually a lot of fun. The journalists were very, very curious about a lot of detail, and they often came up with things that we would never even have thought of. Okay. So that was our daily job. As I said, getting stuff from the commission and then putting it out to the public and then also dealing. So it was a two-parted job and it did not stop. As we got closer, we were now in March and things were getting very, very tense in the country because the 12th of March was supposed to be the cutoff for the elections. It was that weekend. It wasn't actually, I think the 12th of March was a Saturday. So it would have been the Friday, the 11th of March was the cutoff for the elections. We were working in a silo. We would arrive in this building in the early hours of the morning and we would work flat out all day and leave long after dark. And at that stage, remember as well, there was no internet, so no social media. So the only way we had of getting news was if we managed to catch a news broadcast on, the, on TV or listen to the radio or whatever. And we didn't really have time for that. So we weren't 100% certain what was going on in the rest of the country. And we did not know, therefore, that there were riots going on in Boputatswana. Obviously, we, we, we picked up some very important things and we knew there was stuff going on out there. But our job was so focused on just talking about the elections. But we did know that, for instance, Boputatswana had riots because the president didn't want to be part of the elections, but the people in Boputatswana did. Okay. So there were huge riots, there was unrest, there was looting, everything going on in Bogotatswana. Uh -huh. um, there was the Eastern Cape, because the Transkai and the Siskai, again, are these guys coming in? The presidents of those countries didn't want them to, but the local people did. So there were all kind of riots going on there. There were riots between the white, there were bombs going off, there were marches, there was shootings, etc. And I think it came to a bit of a head on the day after the cutoff date for the parties to become part, because they had to sign up at a certain day, and that day was the 11th. And by the 11th, the Conservative Party, which was the White Right Party, they were not going to take part. The IFP, which was the Zulu Nationalist Party, they weren't going to take part. That was a very, very bad weekend for us, because we really thought that if these parties don't take part in the elections, there's going to be civil war. Yeah. But that was a very significant weekend what happened was there was rioting going on in Bopotatswana and that was also where the white right had their headquarters there was an absolutely horrific situation where four white men were stopped at a roadblock in Bopotatswana and they were stopped by black soldiers the soldiers just walked up to the car and shot all four men dead oh my word and it was and it was filmed there was a cameraman there who was filming the sight of those four men begging for their lives and just being shot 
it was it seemed so casual and no, so shocking at the same time yeah. I think that took the heart out of the white right and they realized maybe that we're not going to survive this if we try and fight it because shortly after that the general in charge of that particular party the conservative party he decided that yes we are going to join the elections so that was that was a big thing that happened then because up till then people were scared of the white right because we're talking about people who used to belong to the army they were trained soldiers etc so there was a huge potential for black on white violence Bumping in a civil war and, absolutely yeah. yeah now during that time shortly after that there was a lot of violence between the ANC and the IFP and there was a lot of sensitivity around if the IFP doesn't participate big things of blowing up and shootings and killings and so on with stupid little details like how do we know that somebody's voted if you haven't got an id book you can't put a stamp in your id book you haven't got one there were various ways in which they thought they could prevent people from voting more than once and one of them was to put an ink on their fingernail like we do now yeah but if you vote and somebody who is not participating in the election sees that you voted they might kill you yeah uh, so they scary. decided to bring in an ultraviolet ink which could not be seen except under ultraviolet light. So you've got these tremendously big things like the bombs and the shootings and the violence and, and all of that. And against that, you've got stupid little things like ordering ink and, you know, colors on the ballot sheet and stuff like that. So that's what we were dealing with on a daily basis. Now, the one thing I have to say here is that the commission, the head of the commission was Justice Johan Krichler. And at that stage, we were having daily press conferences. That was something we also had to organize, was a daily press conference where Justice Johan Krichler would come in and he would address the press. And we had to sit in on those because we then had to take those answers and then distribute them to everybody. He had a very dry sense of humor. He was a wonderful man. He never, ever lost his temper, uh, he was always calm, and whenever he walked through the hallways, you know, people would just stop and look at him go past, because we all knew that he basically held the elections in his hands. Yeah, well, you need someone like that just to make sure everyone doesn't lose their minds and they all stay calm. Well, this was it. That was it. He was definitely the right person at the right time. Obviously, all the commissioners were very senior, they were all legal, they were all very experienced people, but he definitely held the whole thing together. This is a good place to simply pause and reflect, because we've now effectively come to the end of the preparation stage. We're about to go into the crunch time, the final couple of days before the elections. And the mood at the moment is that the IFP is still not going to take part, so we're facing a very, very real threat of civil war. And even though at this moment we're already working 18-hour days and the pace is so frenetic, it's about to get worse. Sure, it's hard to believe that it will even get worse, but that is a good place to end our episode one of our 1994 elections. To find out the rest, what happens, listen to our next part two for our next exciting episode. Thank you for listening. This has been Journals of a Journalist. You can follow us on our socials. We have Instagram, which is at Journals of a Journalist. And we have Twitter, which is at Journals of A. If you want, you can send us an email, which is journalsofajournalist at gmail.com. 
Thank you for listening and we'll see you in our next episode. Bye.